Good afternoon, everybody. Happy St. Patrick's Day. You know, I'm grateful that Barry started off our, our welcome hitting that. There's a little bit of pressure when you're preaching on a holiday to feel like you've got to say something about the holiday itself, especially if it's semi-spiritual. And, uh, and I didn't do any of that. And so Barry covered it for me. Like the, the most Irish St. Patty's thing I've got is my green shirt and my red beard. So this is, this is everything that I can provide you for St. Patrick's Day. But Jesus is Lord and it doesn't matter. Alright? Isn't it interesting too that we celebrate a, a saint with a drinking holiday? I'm just throwing that out there. It's always baffled me a little bit. Um, <laughs> well, if you're, uh, if you're here with us, uh, so grateful to have you. Uh, if anybody's visiting here from our Women's Day yesterday, I heard it was a phenomenal, phenomenal event. Ladies, you guys enjoyed yourselves? And my wife came home exhausted but fired up and heard it was a great turnout. So if you're here uh, as kind of a carryover for Women's Day, so glad to have you guys. Uh, And if you are here for the first time here today, uh, we are going through a series right now. We're actually wrapping up a series. We've been starting starting the year with a series called Greater Love, where we're preaching about Jesus and, and his heart to serve the poor and needy. That... As followers of Christ, if we are living like Jesus, there should be a heart in us to not just think about our own lives, to not just share our faith, but to be looking around us to the needs of others and to care about those who especially have needs. And it's been a very challenging sermon. I feel like every time that I've preached, there's been something that God has been trying to show me that I'm not doing and that I need to do better. Today is no different. Um... Uh, I've had a lot of things to be able to work on with this, but it has been, it's been so transformative for my heart. You know, I've heard so many great stories from many of you guys about how it's been helping you spiritually. That when we have this in our minds, you know, I've, uh, I've been trying to pray more about God, help me to have opportunities to help those around me. And God definitely answers that kind of prayer. Because there are so many people around us, not just people who are poor and, and homeless or something like that, but there are just needy people around us constantly. Amen. And today we're going to be we're going to be kind of doing something a little different with this series. We're going to be talking about simplicity. The, t- the title of the sermon today is called The Simple Life. I'm going to say a prayer here and then we're, uh, we're going to get into this. Father, I do just want to thank you so much for the opportunity to, uh, to preach your word today and just to really be in your presence. I'm so grateful for all of my brothers and sisters that are here and for uh, the friends that are visiting with us. But God, I, I just really want to pray that you will help to soften our hearts, to slow us down, and really help us to be attentive to your word today. Uh, I pray that you'll really speak through me and move me out of the way, and uh, God, that, that, that we will really all leave here feeling like we, we connected with a part of your heart uh, in a way that you desire. God, we love you so much. In, your son, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I've known I was going to preach on this topic for, uh, for a while now, and last week, we went to a, uh, an evangelist retreat out in Sacramento. And on our way back, I got, a little, uh, I got a little story to be able to share with you guys about this. So we're getting ready. We're in the security lane. We're you know, about to do the whole take off your shoes and put them in the stupid bins and all that different stuff. And all of a sudden, this woman like reaches over the turnstile, which I thought you'd get shot for at TSA. But she reaches over and touches me and says, says hey, listen, I'm running so late my flight is like about to take off. It's the last call. Can I please go ahead of you? 
And like, you know, and we've been doing this series about loving people and stuff. And so <laughs> what am I going to say? Like, literally, I had a little conversation with myself. I was like, I don't really want to let you, but I should. Okay, go ahead. And I still remember what she looked like. She was wearing this Pikachu hat thing. And she came running with her, with her Ugg boots on. She comes out. She pulls out like nine bins. All right? Like, puts her shoes and her hat in one. Then she pulls out a laptop and then a tablet and then a Nintendo Switch and, like, so many other things. That by, I literally, by the time she was done, I think she used, like, six bins. And I remember looking at this going, man, life can be so complicated right now. We live in a world that is full of stuff and distractions. And I thought this would be fun to share when I'm talking about simplicity next week. You know, the truth is, we, our culture right now, the world wants to simplify. Like, this is actually a big part of, of what the books and the, the people, are, uh, it's a big millennial thing too, is that we're, talking, when we're just too distracted. We've got too much stuff going on. We've got too much stuff in general. I think Scott, somebody shared in the last several weeks about the, uh, how many storage units are in the United States. It's pretty embarrassing when you think about it. We have so much stuff, we can't even keep it at our houses anymore. We have to store it somewhere else. Uh, and, and so there's been all these like revolutions of people that are like, all right, how to try to simplify your life. Trim down the junk. And uh, we've kind of got to, and if we're not doing some of these things ourselves, we kind of, can have a fascination with the people who do. You know what I mean? Like, for example, there are companies now that recognize we are on our devices so much, we have apps for our devices to try to get you to not use your device. <laughs> like, instead of just turning your phone off, it, like, locks you out for a certain period of time because you're on your phone too much. There's this company that developed this phone called the Light Phone. All it does is talk and text, and you can pay $400 to do it. Because our phones do too much stuff. We should simplify it. And I'll charge you a couple hundred bucks, by the way. I think there's a simple, simpler version for this called a flip phone. I think you can get it for like 20 bucks. <laughs> um, tiny homes. This has been a big thing, right? How many of you guys have watched tiny homes shows? They're quite impressive. And I'm sure all of you have had, have had a thought to yourself at some point, like, maybe we could do that. You know, just back it up onto somebody's property. We don't even got to pay for it. But then reality starts to set in. You're like, no, there's no way we could do that. That's just not reality. You know, I watched a, a video a couple weeks ago of a family that moved into a bus. It was like a family of six. And they moved into a bus. And when she was kind of going through all the things that she had to do to, like, do laundry, it was like, man, this is... So much work, even though they only own like three pieces of clothing per person. So again, this is kind of one of those examples. Like, it looks cool in theory until you start considering reality a little bit, right? But on top of that, there's been a big movement in the last several years for minimalism, right? Simplify your life. Use so much less. Get rid of everything. There's YouTube videos of people trying to do the minimalist challenges of 30 days living like a minimalist, and they're all like, like, I can't do it. I just can't do it. It's so hard to not have my stuff. <laughs> or, of course, the one everybody loves. <laughs> you know, I know there was a bunch of women in here that were reading her book last year, and most people kind of brushed it off. And then she got on a Netflix and just blew up everywhere. 
I was reading all these articles. She, she, by the way, she became like an instant meme. Can you read that? All right, it says, this it said, asking a sister on a date in person. A disciple made this, if you didn't figure this out. Asking a sister on a date in person. This one sparks joy. Asking through text. This one does not spark joy. <laughs> uh, but Marie Kondo has taken over the world. So much so, I was reading this thing that, like, Goodwill and Salvation Army saw an uptick of 25% in, in their donations to them and are asking people to stop giving us your junk. We don't want it. So they have this whole rubric of, like, these are the things that we don't want and don't want to have to throw away. But because she's just taking over the world, we just gotta, we gotta get rid of all of our things. We gotta stop hanging our clothes up because they have feelings and they wanna be folded. It's true, tell me I'm wrong. Your clothes have feelings and they're not happy on hangers. Um, but you know, it's interesting, specifically with these two, so the Marie Kondo approach and the minimalist approach, there's kind of these, these core values, these questions you're supposed to ask yourselves. And as a minimalist, you're supposed to ask yourself, does this thing add value to my life? Right? It's a good question, right? If it doesn't, throw it away. And the Marie Kondo goes, okay, does it spark joy? When you, are you going to use it? And if you're going to use it, does it make you feel joyful? Or is it just a thing that you're just a relic you can't get rid of, like half of my stuff? And, you know, these are great approaches. And if you're doing this stuff, great. There's a huge pile of clothes in the middle of my bedroom right now that we're trying to get rid of because Marie Kondo is ruining my life. <laughs> but, but there's still a little bit of a problem with these things. Because I don't know if you caught it, but at the core of these philosophies of cleaning, there's still a problem. It's still about finding joy in a thing. Or finding value in a thing. That we, as people, have a very internal thing in us. That we, it, It's a problem at our core. That we are programmed and buried deep to find value in our stuff. And the things we have. You know, in the 1800s, at the heart of the Industrial Revolution, U.S. and Europe were, uh, were, were, were dealing with a new problem that was feeding our human nature. The heart of mankind. We now had more stuff available than we've ever had before. That now, if you, even if you weren't rich, we had these factories that are pumping stuff out to just give you stuff if you wanted it. Knickknacks and plastic and things with lead paint that were going to cause cancer later on. And because of this, because of the Industrial Revolution, there were these philosophers and writers that started popping up all over the place and became popular. I'm sure you've probably heard of some of these guys. Henry David Thoreau, Jack London. These guys that, these guys that were writing, they were like, okay, this, this clearly isn't making people more happy. Stuff isn't making people more happy. Matter of fact, if everybody was living by Henry David Thoreau's philosophy, we would all have a cabin in the woods somewhere. Right? We, we would have no electricity. We wouldn't see people for miles. We'd probably get eaten by a bear and die of dysentery like the Oregon Trail game. Um, you know, that, and a lot of their philosophy was, 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 was life is not about stuff. It's about things outside of stuff. It's about being outside, enjoying nature and all this stuff. Well, in Russia, there was a guy named Leo, to- Leo Tolstoy. He's, he's somewhat known. 
If you want some light reading, you can pull out a book called War and Peace. It's about 1,300 pages, but it's, it's pretty popular. But he wrote something very interesting in one of his books I want to show you here. His book called Family Happiness. It says, I've lived through much, and now I think I have found what is needed for happiness. A quiet, secluded life in the country with the possibility of being useful to people to whom it is easy to do good and who are not accustomed to have it done to them. Then work which one hopes may be, may be of some use. Then rest, nature, books, music, love for one's neighbor. Such is my idea of happiness. So this philosopher, I mean, he's kind of on the right track here, right? He's still got the whole secluded in the woods thing. But, but at the heart of it, he also realized, look, the purpose of life, this, the, the, the point of life is not to have stuff. The point of life is to have something to give to others. It's to, it's to not be about us, but to be about being useful to other people. And it, I love him the way he worded it. He says, people who are not accustomed to having it done to them. And really, all these philosophers, and even the people like Marie Kondo that are start trying to clean up our lives, what they probably don't realize is they're borrowing a lot from the, from the original minimalist. And that's Jesus. I want you to stop for a second and consider the life of Jesus. Consider his possessions. Consider the way that he lived his life. Consider his net value. Can you get more minimalist than Jesus? And yet, this is the life that if you are calling yourself a Christian, you are called to imitate. In the book of Matthew alone, Jesus hits us with a few things about simplicity. It says, Matthew 5.37, Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Stop making promises and oaths. It's more simple than that. Just when you say yes, mean it. Matthew 6.19, it's supposed to be a 6. Don't store up for yourselves treasures, in hev- treasures on earth that can be broken, rusted, taken from you. Store them in heaven. Stop overfilling your life with stuff and be invested in what counts. Matthew 6.25, don't worry about your life. Stop sweating it about clothes, about food. Go after your relationship with God. Matthew 16, 24 says, you know what? You can gain the whole world. You can have all of this stuff, but lose your soul. Life is not about stuff. And the last one, Matthew eleven thirty: my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus didn't come to this earth to complicate our lives. He came to simplify it. He came to give us something that's real and that's true and has nothing to do with the clothes on, on your back, the car you drive, what your social media followers are like. It has nothing to do with any of that. It's much more simple. Just like Tolstoy wrote, Jesus' goal is not for us to shack up in a cabin, or close the doors of the church to become a monastery. He wants us to simplify our lives so that we can love and give to others. I have two points for us today. Point number one, less is more. I did this for the teachers. All right, turn your Bible over to Matthew chapter 10. 
And this is a story about Jesus sending out the 12 apostles for the first time. Starting in verse 5. So these 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received, so freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you on your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Let's stop there. So he kind of goes on and talks about, you know, being willing to stay, like, like that they were going to be living off of generous people that were willing to take them in. But what's interesting about this is this is the first time, like I said, that Jesus was getting his disciples to actually go out on their own. They've been walking with Jesus, observing him, listening to him, watching him do miracles, watching him do all the things that now he's saying, now you've got to go do. What you saw me do, go do likewise. And it was time for them to put into practice imitating him. And he gave them some specific instructions. And I'll point some of these things out. First, he says, I want you to go to the towns of Israel. He's, he keeps it simple. He says, look, the Gentiles, that's coming. After I die and resurrect, in Matthew 28, you know, he says, go into all nations. But for now, we're going, to make, we're going to keep it simple. Just go to your relatives. Go to your people. Go to the family members you've got, the towns you know, and go preach my word to them. And that brings the second thing. He says, I want you to preach that the kingdom of heaven is near. And there's a lot of things I could unpack with that. But the idea is, he's saying, look, the Savior is now here. The new covenant is coming. Life is going to be different. Now it's time to start thinking the way that God wants you to think. Part of the mindset of the kingdom of heaven, I heard a a sermon on this recently. He said, you're supposed to be thinking and living now on earth the way we're supposed to in heaven. That you now, as followers of Jesus, are supposed to be changing your life to live here as human beings as you will one day in heaven. The third thing he says, as we've been talking about in our series, is I want you to go out and help the poor and the needy. I want you you to do miraculous things, but I want you to help those that are helpless. The lepers, if you remember a couple weeks ago, I showed us the picture of lepers. So the the, the ones that were outcasts, that that nobody nobody would touch. I want you to go to them. I want you to lay your hands on them and heal them. I want you to change their destiny. I want you to open your eyes to the needs of the people that are around you. You're not just there to preach. You're not just there to purely make disciples. You're there to meet needs. And the fourth thing, this is going along with what we're talking about here, says, you know what? And I don't want you to bring a thing. Take nothing extra at all. I don't want you to bring money. I'm going to talk about a terrifying journey. Go to a town that you're maybe not familiar with hoping that somebody will take you in with no money on you. No extra clothes. You know, the whole extra tunic thing, I was reading a commentary that said that was about, like, just being warm at night. That's not even, like, I need a change of clothes to have. That's, like, this is something that you would do for normal 
as you go to bed at night so that you could stay warm. It says, don't even bring that. Don't bring extra sandals so if the, the thong breaks, that's it, dude. I don't even want you to bring a staff, which I don't even know all the things with that. That might have just been a hiking thing. But the idea is, he says, look, I want you to go with nothing material that you could rely on. This is minimalism at its finest. Try to find a better example if you dare. And you know, the first three things make sense as a disciple. Right? That that we know if we're supposed to be following Jesus, yeah, we're supposed to go out, we're supposed to preach about Jesus and about the kingdom, and we're supposed to love people and meet needs. Right? That's easy. Then you got this, this, this fourth thing. I mean, what's all this about? And I was reading some commentaries on this part of the passage. And I was thinking about it and praying about it a lot for myself because I wanted to understand what Jesus was trying to help the apostles to get with this. Like, was it just kind of a dare? Like, I want you just to try this out and, you know, show people before YouTube challenges were a thing. Uh, and here's what I've come up with. Number one, I think the reason why Jesus did this is because he didn't want them weighed down with stuff. Possibly physically, right? Just like when he was calling the first disciples, they had to pull their boats up on shore and leave their nets because they couldn't go with Jesus and carry a boat from town to town. It doesn't make sense. But I think it's more than just the, the physical elements of it. There's a spiritual thing here because as we all know, the more you have, the more you think about Right? We stress out about them. I just got these, these headphones for Christmas. I was given a bunch of gift cards. and uh, I, I'm like, I, I don't shop very easily. I'm not a very good shopper. But when I do, I like really like, I, I read reviews and I want to make sure this is going to last me until I'm dead. Like that's kind of my goal. <laughs> so I bought these headphones, some nice headphones. And we were just on this trip last week and I couldn't find them. And I'm sitting in this lesson and for about 15 minutes, I couldn't think of anything else except where are my stupid headphones. I can't believe I brought them. I told myself this is a bad idea. I shouldn't have brought them. Now, now, now you've just lost that on this money. And all, all those different things started to rush through my head. And then I found them, and I felt like a moron. But then I thought about it later on. I was like, stuff is so stupid. It's a thing that if I did lose it in five years, I probably wouldn't care about it. But yet, it took up all of my thought and energy in that moment. And there's a truth to this. If there's anything else, that, if there's any of the stuff that we own, we think about it. We worry about it. We want to make sure it's locked up correctly. We want to make sure, hey, I don't know if this person is really trustworthy around my stuff. And if I should let them explore it, they might break it, they might take it. I don't know what their intentions are, but it's my stuff. The more we have, the more we tend to stress about. You know, in Luke chapter 12, when he's, when he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount there, we're not going to turn there, I'm just going to refer to it here. Jesus tries to address this in the heart of us as people. You know, he tells, in, in about 10 verses, he goes from telling the parable of the rich fool. He says, look, your life is not about the abundance of possessions. Matter of fact, if you are thinking that it's all about your possessions, it can be taken away from you just like that. 
You could say, I'm going to store it all up. I'm going to have all this money saved up for retirement. And then you die and it doesn't matter. Or as so many of our friends and family members, brothers and sisters up in the north area of the church experienced in the fires last year, it can all be taken away by an act of God. And then shortly after that is when he talks about the do not worry principle. He says, look, don't worry about your stuff. Stop worrying about your clothes. Stop worrying about your food. Life is more than stuff. So I think that's the first thing, the major thing there. But I think the second reason why Jesus said, I want you to have less, to have almost nothing, is because I want you to trust God, not your stuff, and not your plan. The more stuff we have, the more we tend to rely on it. The more we tend to lean on it for security. It's amazing how quickly when some of that stuff gets taken away, like you have car problems. We all know that. Once you get car problems, it's one of the most ridiculously debilitating things in the moment, isn't it? You probably don't think about your car all that much other than making sure it's got gas in it until the radiator blows. And then it's the biggest inconvenience to your whole family. There's a guy I studied the Bible with in college years ago that I'll never forget. His name's Mitchell. He's still your brother in Christ. But after reading about discipleship, he heard, okay, deny yourself, take up your cross, and give up everything to be a disciple. He took that to heart. And a couple of days later, I went to go pick him up at his apartment, and he had set all of this stuff over on the side of his room. His TV, video games, movies, clothes, all this stuff. He said, whatever you want over there, just take it. And I was like, what's going on here? Like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm only going to keep certain clothes over here. I'm pretty much getting rid of all this stuff. And I just signed my truck over to my roommate. And I was like, you know you can have a truck and serve Jesus, right? Like, <laughs> matter of fact, you'll be a designated mover for people. But he said, no, 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 no. I put so much money, time, and energy into this stupid stuff. I feel like I will be able to serve Jesus better if it's just not in my life. To this day, I've never met someone that I think understood the heart of Jesus in that moment better than him. Like, I, don't, I don't need this stuff. He Signed, he literally didn't sell it to his roommate. He signed the pink slip over to his roommate and rode a bike. I think this is kind of the stuff that Jesus is trying to get at here. Look, you don't need to trust your stuff. Trust in God. If you're following me, if you're going with God, then you've got to trust that if you're doing my will, God's going to take care of you. He's going to give you more than you could ever understand. Matter of fact, later on when he talks about a house that was willing to take the disciples in, it calls him a house that's worthy. Just the mere fact that they're willing to open up their door to you means that God's going to do something special through you for them. Your stuff is not what God wants to use. God wants to use you. What does this mean for us? Does it mean give up all your stuff? Maybe. I think we tend to shy away from that a little bit. But when Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler, he said, look, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then come follow me. 
that wasn't necessarily a suggestion. And maybe for some of us, being willing to say, you know what, I'm going to give up my stuff is exactly what's going to help you to get closer to God and to be able to serve more people. But outside of that, I think what it does mean for sure is we have to evaluate what gets most of our time. What gets most of our energy and what gets most of our thought? Because whatever has those things has your heart. Things, social media, TV shows, video games, if that occupies more of our thoughts and our heart than our walk with God, loving the lost or loving the needy, then it might be time to clean house a little bit. In Hebrews 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The Hebrew writer here is saying, look, it's not just throwing off the stuff that's directly sin. He says, look, if it's hindering you, if it's going to slow you down, if you're running a marathon and you're wearing a backpack full of textbooks, you probably want to take it off. If you're trying to run the marathon of discipleship, loaded down with a bunch of junk, you probably ought to throw it off. You know, I gave the, the men on, on Tuesday the one-week challenge. How many of you guys have been, been trying to hold to it? Got a couple of us? Did a couple of you guys like get a couple of days and then give up? Because let me tell you, it's been hard for me. I was the one that issued the challenge, and it has taken a lot of deliberate thought and effort to not go do the stuff that's distracting, to not go to social media, to not go read a bunch of ESPN articles, that's really hard to do. But you know what I found in doing that? This last week, I've spent better time with God. I spent great time with my kids. I was able to give my energy in ways that I haven't really been giving very well lately. I'm just trying to be vulnerable and real with you guys. I'm not above anybody in here in this. And it's even inspired me. You know what? I'm probably going to do more than a week. This is probably going to be maybe the beginning of a life change here for me. But I don't want to be known as somebody that's, that just knows all the Netflix shows that are out there. Or can tell you what the basketball scores were. That's not what I want my life to be known for. And I have to remind myself of something that's very true. I had to tell myself this several times this week. I have never regretted giving up something for the sake of a relationship with God or to love others. But I almost always regret it when I don't. Point number two. The more you get, the more you give. First Timothy chapter six. You still with me? First Timothy chapter six, starting in verse one. Or starting verse 6, rather, sorry. It says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food or clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Let's stop there for a moment. So Paul kind of starts this discourse here by going into a comparison of contentment and the love for money and greed. He just kind of pits themselves against each other. And in verse 10, you know, the verse that, that a lot of people love to misquote, it doesn't say the, the love of money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But it says that it leads us away from God, and it also opens up the door for a lot of pain. And keep in mind here, he's not saying if you're really rich, it's, it's going to be hard. He's saying if you love money, and it's all about you getting it, and getting stuff, you're opening yourself up to a world of hurt. So you could be working on $60,000 a year and still be a greedy person and still be inviting a whole lot of pain into your life. When it becomes about our money and our stuff, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but nothing you have is good enough. You know what I'm talking about? When it's all about getting what I want, none of the clothes I have are current enough. You know, my car is a 2012, and it doesn't have Bluetooth. I got to actually start learning this at a young age. As I was working on this sermon, I, I, I got taken back to third and fourth grade. Okay? Fun time of life. Time where fads were just coming and going so quickly. And the fads were, I, I still remember, the ones that I remember were, where at one point in time, what was really in for everybody to have was football trading cards. You had to buy packs of football trading cards. And then like a month later, was Pogs. Pogs. And you had to have some really cool slammers. Right? You had to go out and buy some like $20 piece of metal that was in a coin. Um, and they started giving away a Burger King and stuff too. But then Pogs went away. Then it became yo-yos. You know, you had to get one that could, that could sleep for a long time, and it, you know, it was really impressive. And then, then yo-yos went away. Then it was digipets, or Tamagotchis. Okay? Then, uh, then they remastered Star Wars and re-released it in theaters, and they came out with these Star Wars collectible figures. And those were really popular. And then, the bane of all existence, Pokemon cards. Where you could drop $50 on a little piece of cardboard with a cartoon on it. Okay, and this is like, this is I think over third and fourth grade that I remember these, these fads coming and going. Okay? And with each fad, I just had to have it. Mom, I gotta get football cards. Everybody has football cards. If you don't have football cards, then they don't wanna talk to you. But, okay, Mom, now I gotta get some pogs. Can you buy me a slammer? I need a slammer. And with everything, it was never good enough because it would come and go and then you ended up with this drawer full of junk that nobody cared about. Maybe to update this, you parents that have a bunch of useless fidget spinners laying around your house now. Right? Remember when fidget spinners were everywhere for about a year? Or silly bands? <laughs> I just took somebody back for a second. But I got to learn at a very young age that, you know what? Stuff comes and goes. You think it's going to make you happy, and then they move on. But then what about my yo-yo? I just learned how to walk the dog. Like, why?
What Paul's discussing here is, is when our hearts are for greed, for money, for stuff, it's not going to be enough. You're going to be disappointed. It's going to hurt. You're going to look around you and everybody else's stuff is still better than yours. And there's always going to be somebody that has more money than you. But then he discusses the concept of contentment. Contentment is a word that just makes you just... You know, personally, this is my word for the year, contentment. This is, 1 Timothy 6.6 6 is actually my scripture that I'm trying to keep on my mind as often as I can. Godliness with contentment is great gain. That God wants me to be in a place where, you know what, I'm okay. You know, the Greek word for contentment, autarkeia, I said that wrong, I'm sure. I want to show you what it means. This is really cool. It says, a mind contented with its lot. Sufficient, sufficiency of the necessities of life. But then this is the kicker. I love this one. A perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed. Paul just told us that what God desires for us is to be in a state where, you know what? I've got everything I need. I'm perfect as I am. God has provided for me. I don't need more money. I don't need another thing. My life is good. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? That's pretty simple. When you think about living a simple life, I don't know if contentment, if you're going to get better than contentment. But the question still becomes how. How do we get to this place? Because God's not saying it's, it's, it's once, you've, once you've reached a certain financial point, then everything's good. Then you'll be content. Or once, once every member of the family has a cell phone and a car, then you're going to be content. Look at verse 17. It says, Command those who are rich in this present world to not be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly Life. What's the road to contentment? Being rich in giving. The road to contentment, he's saying, says give yourself in good deeds. Give yourself to serving. Give yourself to loving the people around you. To to recognizing that there's a need in the church and saying, I'm not going to wait for somebody else. I'm going to fill it. It's to give your money. To God and to others. Contentment doesn't come from keeping or taking. It comes from giving. Because you have your hope in God and the life he gives you here and in heaven. That thinking, that kind of simple life leads to that that word contentment. The perfect condition of life. And if you think about it, this isn't a mystery. You know people in your life that are great givers. And you know what? They tend to be happier. They tend to be more at peace. They tend to sleep better than you do. 
God doesn't tell us to obey things like this because they're good for him. But because he knows they're good for us. He doesn't need your money. I hope you figure that out. God has access to all the money. He doesn't need yours. As a matter of fact, if you decided that you were going to be just completely greedy and you're not going to give, he's going to find it somewhere else. But you know what will happen? You're going to be dealing with the grief, the pain, and the condemnation rather than the contentment. In verse 17, it says something really powerful here. As I was studying out 1 Timothy this week, it says again, it says, if we put our hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I don't know how that makes you feel, but I read that verse this week and it made me stop. God doesn't just provide. It says he provides richly. He doesn't just provide my necessities. It says he provides for my enjoyment. This word bugged me a lot because I don't want to be a prosperity gospel preacher. I don't want you to, I don't want to tell you that if you give your offerings and you give your energy, that God's just all of a sudden going to give you a raise and a boat and your life is going to get better. That's a lie. Okay, most of the disciples were persecuted and killed. Okay? But, so this, this scripture jumped out at me and I went and I even looked up commentaries and, and the Greek on this and that word enjoyment, it's real. It says, God wants you, to get, wants you to get things from him so that you can enjoy your life. God's goal is not for us to be monks who are suffering and lashing ourselves because we desire things. It says, I want you to have a life that's simple, that's content, and that you enjoy. But you don't get it through stuff. You get it with me. You know, and I'm really grateful that in this room we have so many great givers. Amen. And I'm not just talking about financially. And I want to clarify here, I know I brought this up last year, that the word rich in the Bible, we've got to get out of our head that that means you're a millionaire. The word rich means you have more than you need. If you live in America and are above the poverty line, even below the poverty line, you're rich by 99% of the world's standards. You have more than you need. And if you don't have it, you can actually go to places that will give it to you for free. You're good. So when he says rich, he's not meaning that it's somebody that just has a bunch of money. We've got great givers in here that give financially that aren't necessarily rich people. We've got people that give to help support people to go to Women's Day and to, and to youth camp. We've got people that are great, consistent givers in the church. Then we've got people that are, that are great givers. They're great servants, and they give their time, their love, their energy to kids' kingdom and all kinds of things. And I love that we've got so many great examples of that here in this room. But God wants that to be for every man and woman in here. That's not just for a few. That's supposed to be, you know, the words that Paul uses here. Where is it? It says, take hold of the life that is truly life. This is not an issue of the state of your financial situation. It is the state of your heart and your hope in God. When I look back over my life at times where I was the most generous, there's a lot of times I can look back at and it wasn't like I was balling financially. I was a poor, broke college student, but for some reason, I just liked doing things for people financially. 
The times that I've been the most generous, when I look at my life, I tend to feel more at peace, not bound or attached to the stuff that I have. But more importantly, I tend to see more obviously the way that God takes care of me. The times when I've been the most stingy financially, and on the flip side of that, sometimes that's been when I've had the most money. I'm stressed, restless, I don't tend to sleep very well, and I tend to see God taking care of me less and less and feel like I question where he is. You know, we're going to take communion here in a moment together. And before we do, I want to look at one last passage in Philippians chapter 2. I know it's a little warm in here, but I believe in us. We can do it. We're coming in for a landing. Verse 5. Paul writes, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and, uh, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul writes here that our attitude should be the same as Jesus. And what Paul just wrote is Jesus had everything. You have to get that in our heads. Jesus was in heaven, completely content in his relationship with God. He had everything at his disposal, and yet he gave it up to come down to earth to be at our level, and not just to be at our level, to take on the nature of a servant. There's a word here that Paul uses that's bothered me over the years. It says he made himself nothing. I studied out that word in college, and it, it's a pretty humbling word when you look at the Greek for it. But what it means, it says it means he voluntarily emptied himself. It means my life is not about me. I choose to give up everything. I choose to empty myself of the glory of heaven, of the riches of earth that I am due as a king, so that I could be everything for you. As we're reading about the simple life, and the life that Jesus is calling us to imitate, he didn't just say, go out and do this. He's saying, look, let me show you how I did it. God in the flesh gave it all up, traded heaven, so that you could sit here today. No matter how much we think we've given, we will never, ever outgive Jesus. And the reason why we give of our time, of our energy, of our money, the reason why we would give our money to to somebody on the street that you don't know what they're going to do with it is because Jesus gave everything for you, even though you and I are enemies. And he gave it up so that we could live a simple life that is about God and about others. You know, the truth of the matter is, 
It only gets complicated when we wander outside of this. So I want us to bow our heads and say a prayer here for the communion we're going to take together. And I want you to meditate on what Jesus is willing to give up for you or what that means that we ought to give for him. God, I want to thank you so much that you loved us enough to see past our mess, our complications, our flaws and our weaknesses, to be willing to trade heaven to come down and be a servant that would die on the cross for our sins. God, and I pray that just as Paul said, our attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, that we would have the nature of of Christ in wanting to empty ourselves for you. From our time and our money, God, that there's nothing we could ever give that would outgive you. And God, and there's nothing that we could give that you won't take care of. God, thank you for giving to us far beyond what we deserve. And I pray that likewise, God, we will live, we will live a simple life, Father, that, that benefits and loves other people. We love you so much. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.